So um, pray for Joe. I mean, not, not just because he has to work with me. And not just because he has to work with you. But um, it's not easy doing what he does. And I was reminded of that this week. Um, so as you know, Joe is pursuing his master's degree uh, at St. Mary's. Uh, this week we had a terrific opportunity to do a class, a whole class, on uh, the works and the theology of, of N.T. Wright. Um, thank you, by the way, to all of you who showed up at the, at the um, service on Wednesday night. I think Kanai said if we were to mathematically work it out in terms of percentage of, of congregations uh, in attendance, New Hope was way beyond any other church in town. Um, and uh, and I, hope, I hope those of you who were there found that to be a good experience, uh, but um, that was actually part of, of a three-day intensive class, and the way intensive classes work, um, I've, I've done a few of them, um, you, you, know, you read basically a whole pile of stuff ahead of time, and you write a bunch of stuff ahead of time, and then you go to the class, and you talk about it, and then you go home, and you read a bunch more stuff, and you write a bunch more stuff. Um, and uh, this is what Joe gets to do, and it's and it's great. I mean, it's very stimulating. It's it's uh, fun in a way. If 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 you know, it's the sort of thing you like. If you like that sort of thing, um, but it's also it's also hard. And one of the things that's hard about doing coursework in theology that may not be the case if you're doing coursework in, for example, electrical engineering, is that there's a lot at stake. Right, so one of the students in the class, and I just sat in on it. I, I, you know, as an alum of the Ecumenical Institute, I can audit these classes really cheap. So I just sort of sat in. But this one student was, you know, was saying, you know, if 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 Tom Wright's critique of 16th century Reformed theology of the atonement is correct, then basically that upends everything that my tradition teaches. And, you know, if, if he's saying we, we've started at the wrong point, then that messes with everything that comes after. And so I have to figure out if, if I can understand that starting point differently and still get to the things that my tradition teaches or if I have to completely disassemble my entire theological framework. This is, this is not a small thing to have to consider, um, especially if you're already in a position of leadership and if, you know, like maybe it's even your job. Um, but it's, it's also hard because when you go through these, these texts, whether it's a biblical text or whether it's the work of a theologian or a certain doctrine, um, you, you often find that, that what you have to do is actually disassemble the whole structure of your thinking because you find out that it's not stable. And then the challenge is then you have to sort of be able to go through the process of reassembling it in a way that's going to work better. And, and the, the good news is that usually how it works is that you, you kind of go through the dark tunnel and then you come through and on the other end there's light um, and you find that you're able to establish a, a much more stable, much uh, more workable way of thinking about something really important. Um, but in some ways, you know, it is kind of like, um, you know, fixing your transmission while you're driving down the highway. Uh, because, you know, you're doing these things while you are living as a follower of Jesus, while you're having to 
do all the thinking about that that you have to while you're maybe involved in teaching or in doing ministry. And, um, and, and that's, that's not an easy thing to do. So, so please, as you pray for Joe, pray for his head. Pray that he can keep things straight as he needs to. Um, and that, uh, that, you know, I mean, ultimately this is, I can tell you from personal experience, this is a, a very nourishing experience spiritually. This is a place where you constantly can testify to God's goodness in coming through and in, in enlightening and bringing the, the illumination of the Spirit onto the words that the Spirit inspired so long ago. Um, but, but it can be scary and it can be difficult. And, um, and in working through this series on Hosea, I was brought back to, to one of the very first experiences I had in seminary now, <clears throat> believe it or not, almost 20 years ago. Uh, the very first paper I wrote for my class in the Old Testament prophets was on Hosea. Um, and this was, uh, I had to write, a, I think, a five to seven page paper. Um, you know, I think last year I could, if, if, I, if I was able to start the paper by Wilmington, uh, I could be pretty well down the road to, to being done by the time we, we got through Newark and got ready to go into the tunnel to get into New York, and I would just have a little bit of cleanup to do once I got to my, to my dorm room. But, but this first five- to seven-page paper nearly killed me. It nearly killed our marriage, too. Mary was going nuts. She's like, it's five pages you've written. How many papers? You know, and, and by that point, I hadn't written nearly as many as I have, but I certainly had written enough. You'd think I could be able to, to do this. But, but I was struggling with this book of Hosea. So I was reading it and reading it and reading it and reading all these commentaries and reading all these articles. I just, I, I had the hardest time making sense of how this thing works. As we've seen through the course of this fall, as we've gone through this book, God has a case to make against his people. God has very, very good reasons for being wroth for being angry, for being offended. God has very good reasons for describing His relationship with His people Israel in terms of the relationship between a wronged spouse and an adulterous wife. And yet throughout Hosea, you get it in the beginning, you get it in the end, as we'll see, but then there are a couple little places in the middle, too, where it pops up. You, you have this message of hope, this message of reconciliation. And I had the hardest time understanding how those two could go together. How could God's holy wrath, His holy anger, His just condemnation of the betrayal of His people, how could that fit with his expression of love and forgiveness for his people? How could those both be true? <clears throat> and certainly in chapter 1, if you will we'll go back to the beginning, the word of Yahweh came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. This is a prophet who is prophesying in the last decades of the northern kingdom before it 
finally falls to Assyria. But when he's starting out, things actually look pretty good. And Hosea has the unenviable task of telling people that, uh, no, actually things are about to get really, really bad. And it's your fault. When Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, go and take to yourself an Eshet Zanunim, a whorish wife and children of whoredom, because the land is guilty of the vilest whoring in departing from Yahweh. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam. She conceived and bore him a son. We read about these children. The first one is Hosea's. The second and third, we're not so sure. But they're given these names that reflect the unfaithfulness of God's people. And yet, in verse 10, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So not only is God going to restore his blessings upon this people. He's going to reunite a divided nation. Chapter 2, where you get this sort of poetic version of this story. After God has said that he is going to take away his grain, he's going to take away the wine, he's going to take back his wool and his linen, Intended to cover her nakedness. I'm going to expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. I'm going to stop all her celebrations. I'm going to stop all her filthy parties. I'm going to ruin everything that she thought were gifts from her lovers, her idols that actually he had given them, given to her. I'm going to punish her for the days that she burned incense to these false gods. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Therefore, and you expect more of the same, right? Because of all this, therefore I am going to, you know, open holes in the ground and make them fall into it and listen to Celine Dion for eternity and hang out on Stairmasters or something. What does he say? He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And then she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in that day when she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares Yahweh, you'll call me my husband, not my master. I'll remove the names of these false gods from her lips, and no longer will their names be invoked. goes on and on and on about how he's going to reestablish his people. I will say to those, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I'll say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It's this, this picture of reconciliation, this picture of restoration of love. 
you get that most powerful, most poetical in chapter 11 that we talked about a few weeks ago. Again, after God spends the first seven verses of chapter 11 talking about how unfaithful and how wicked his people have been, how much they've betrayed him. And he says, but how, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How, how can I hand you over? My heart churns within me. All of my loving compassion is aroused. And so I won't carry out my fierce anger. Nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Even in chapter 13, he's in the midst of all of these declarations of judgment. In between, when God says the guilt of Ephraim is stored up, his sins are kept on record in in verse 13. 12 and in verse 15 when he says I will have no compassion even though he thrives among his brothers you get verse 14 where he says I will ransom them from the power of Sheol of the grave I will redeem them from death where O death are your plagues where O grave is your destruction remember that from 1 Corinthians 15 that great chapter on the resurrection where Paul quotes Hosea and talks about God's ultimate victory over death. And so here in chapter 14, our text of today, return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Use your words and return to Yahweh. Say to him, forgive us all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria can't save us. We won't mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He'll blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he'll send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will again dwell in his shade. He'll flourish like the grain. He'll blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what more have you to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. Like a green pine tree, your fruitfulness comes from me. What a beautiful, beautiful story of reconciliation. What a beautiful picture of redemption, of restoration. But it doesn't seem to make sense doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what Hosea wrote. And I kept puzzling over this and puzzling over this and puzzling over this. And finally, (coughs) I noticed back in chapter 3, you remember 
chapters 1, 2, and 3 are kind of Hosea's account of his story of what God called him to do. Yahweh said to me, go and show your love to your wife again, even though she was loved by another and is an adulteress. God, not only did he call Hosea to marry a person of doubtful character, not only did he tell Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer, but he then said, take her back, take her back, even though even though she's with somebody else. Even though right now she's being unfaithful to you. Even though you're going to literally have to buy her off of her face. Take her back. Love her as Yahweh loved the Israelites. Even though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred grazing sheep. And as I read that, it just seemed to me that Hosea's fuses must have blown. That there, there must have been a sense in which Hosea said, that this, this does not make sense. This is not something I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I am going to show my love to this person who has betrayed me. But I'll do it. I'll obey. But I think Hosea went to his grave deeply scarred emotionally. And the reason for that is that this is not something that is easy for humans to do. So when God tells us in chapter 11, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. Why? Why can God say that? Why can God say something that would be so hard for any of us to say? The answer is, I am God, and I'm not a man. I am the Holy One in Israel, and I will not come in wrath. There's some way in which God's wrath had to be satisfied so that he wouldn't come and execute it on his people. got to be some way in which his justice can be fulfilled. Because his, his love and his justice are not at odds with one another. They're both essential to his character. It's not like, it's not like the two don't match. Both has to be satisfied. Both has to be fulfilled. Both have to be part of the equation. And it occurred to me 
that there was a place where God's love and his wrath were satisfied fully at the same time. Paul says it this way in Romans in chapter 5. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will will anyone die for a righteous man. Yeah, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But but God demonstrates his own love for us this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We need reconciliation, don't we? I mean, isn't that the case that God makes against Israel, they need to be reconciled. They have betrayed their husband. They have, it's not just that they, you know, kind of fell short and didn't quite ace the test. They have, at the most basic and fundamental level, betrayed the most important relationship, the essence of who they are they were as God's people. Heschel puts it this way when he talks about how hard it is to be a prophet. He said the prophet is an individual who said no to a society condemning its habits and assumptions, its complacency, waywardness, and syncretism. He's often compelled to proclaim the very opposite of what his heart expected. His fundamental objective was to reconcile man and God. Why do the two need reconciliation? Perhaps it is due to man's false sense of sovereignty, to his abuse of freedom, to his aggressive, sprawling pride, resenting God's involvement in history. These are all things that rightly put us in the position of condemnation that Israel was in, that Hosea described. Those things that are true of Israel are true of all of us as human beings in our rejection of God's holy way, our choice to do things the way we would like to do them. Thank you.
so justly falls upon us. It needs to be satisfied. And that is the message of the cross. That there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set us free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. And what the Torah was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh, specifically in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met, No other way the righteous requirements of Torah could be fully met in us without them being fully met in Jesus. And that therefore being true of us who are in him. That means now we get to live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so... We have an obligation as we live. The obligation isn't to the flesh to live according to it, but because if we live according to the flesh, we'll die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we'll live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For we didn't receive a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear. We received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I really do believe Hosea didn't understand the full scope of his message until Calvary. Not until the cross did it all hold together. He wasn't the first and he wasn't the last prophet to be surprised at the full scope of what he was saying be delighted in the way that God fulfilled what he had to say to his people. And so as we prepare to take communion, I want us to recognize and to own fully degree to which the just condemnation that attaches to our sinfulness is just and is ours. And the fact that through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer on the hook. That there is now no condemnation. 
for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It is through Christ Jesus that the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set us free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. That what Torah was powerless to do, it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus in order that the righteous requirements of the of Torah might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Will you stand with we recite the creed, I'll invite you to come forward, take the elements back to your seats with you, and then we will partake of them together. The red is wine, the white is grape juice, the bread is unleavened, and we also have gluten-free wafers. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.